And welcome back. Courtney McInvale with us. Her website is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Courtney, if people want to go on this tour, what do they do? They're going to go to seasideshadows.com, and they'll be able to click tickets and calendar and see what we have going on in Connecticut and Rhode Island for 2024. Um, And then in the next few months, you should see some tours in Georgia open up for 2024 as well. How long does the tour last? Usually about an hour and a half to two hours. Well, that's not bad. No, no. Just enough to, you know, get you a little bit spooked, but you can always book investigations and special events for longer. Do you do them primarily on the weekends or all over the place? So in Mystic, we operate almost every single day, uh, except in the month of January, because we're a little bit chilly up here. And Georgia will probably open, you know, in January, because they're a little more temperate. Uh, And in Rhode Island and the graveyard, we have a little bit more of a weekend-heavy schedule. The spirits that you've written about, have you had any that you decided to put on the cutting cutting floor that you didn't use? Didn't, that didn't make it. So that did. Speak? That did not make it to the book. Oh, um, yes, um, but they didn't get fully cut. They just got condensed, uh, and a lot of those were generals. Um, a lot of people got promoted during the Civil War really quickly because folks were dying, and it's not that they were insignificant, but just they didn't have as much of a spiritual story or a compelling personal story, so they more got paragraphs than they did chapters. <laughs> and what would you hope to accomplish with all the work you've been doing in this field? I would love to accomplish a sort of Most of all, getting people to appreciate history in a way that they're able to connect with it and to ensure the memory of so many souls who maybe would be lost to history, who would be forgotten, and so that they know they're not forgotten and we can maybe look at them in a different light as a way we're able to connect with them. Let's start with uh, Brendan in Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brendan, go ahead. Hello, George. Happy New Year. You too, my friend. I won two hundred dollars on a or on a dollar fifty bet on the slot machines. All right. Yeah, it was pretty good. And Courtney, welcome to Coast to Coast. Oh, thank uh, you so much. People, yes, thank you. Most people could probably go out and get audio evidence, especially in the South. In Central Texas, uh, there's been combat for a long time, and even before the Civil War, there was the War for Independence, which seems to have a lot of residual energy left behind. And I had gone out and in my backyard and done a recording, and I got a uh, a person that came up, and he said, Jim C., 2nd Battalion, and it sounded like a whole bunch of people walking through the mud, like a huge group of people. And every time they put their foot down, you could hear the split, like the, the sound of uh, the water in their boot and, like, the air moving and... When they put, took their boot up, you could hear the air sucking in underneath their boot. And it was a bunch of people walking by. And another person came up, and he says, I'm traveling. I'm trying to get to San Antonio. Necesito zapatos, agua, which is I need shoes and water. And um, hmm. so I think there's, like, a lot of people that are just moving around and uh, – I get a lot of ethnic people that will speak 
Spanish and I have a little bit of ethnicity in my blood as well. And I've taken people out that were German and the white spirits would talk to them. I guess they weren't comfortable talking to me and uh, the Spanish people would speak to me. And I think that part of uh, what we're talking about here is the tragedy of militarism uh, grinding down the youth at their peak and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And a lot of this is like echoes of the American Holocaust in our area. And uh, the Africans and the natives and Hispanics lost their culture and society and heritage and traditions and family. And their suffering and pain is ineffable. No amount of words can ever put to uh, what they went through. but you try to cover it up and the wounds bleed through the cover-up, even through time. And that's what I like about this. And I'm sure that you like about it as well is that the truth of history just comes through, even if you try to cover it up. No, you're absolutely right. And I've been sitting here smiling and nodding as you've been talking. Everything you say is 100% correct. And the more you uncover stories of soldiers, no matter what the war, the more you find out that they are almost the innocents who were thrust upon each other because of other people. And a lot of what you're saying is kind of common, too. You know, um, there's an incident in Georgia known as the Roll Call of the Dead, which is very similar to your story. Uh, it's in a place called Oakland Cemetery in Atlanta. And there's uh, burials there of thousands of unknown soldiers. And people say that when you go there at night, you can hear the names of them each being called and them each responding that they're present. But what's really fascinating is that depending on who visits, they also call the name of the person visiting as well, as if they see you there and connect with you. And I think that there is an ancestral connection and almost a cry for, you know, remember me. And they do know who they connect with. I, I mentioned I have southern roots. My husband is completely northern roots. I won't get as much spirit communication with the southern spirits if he's with me. I have to send him away. So you're right on that as well. Courtney, what was the earliest ages of the Civil War soldiers? The youngest that I have found that were, you know, really fighting were about 10 to 11 years old. Oh, my God. With, with, with rifles? Yes. Now, initially, uh, the youngest one from Georgia, he went in to sort of protect his brother, and he would sort of be a messenger. But within two years, he was fighting with rifles as well. And a lot of the evidence that we've captured, too, you can hear the youth in their voices, um, and you can hear a lot of them calling out for their mothers uh, in a lot of these EVPs, and that just shows you how young they are. Thomas in La Jolla, California. Hi, Tom. Go ahead. Hi, George. Thank you for being live on um, New Year's Day. Absolutely. And, uh, Courtney, great information. Um, I have a comment and a question. My comment is um, I know a lady, young lady, from Atlanta, Georgia, and she came out to visit me um, recently, and um, she was very, you know, I was just surprised at her emotion toward the Civil War, you know, and, you know, she's a Georgian, you know, from Atlanta, um, 
I knew her because she trained in the martial arts. She was a black belt and still is a black belt, sudden death in both hands and feet, but um, very emotionally involved with the history of the uh, Civil War. I didn't understand this, frankly. So um, I invited her. I said, let's go out and see that one of the movie theaters has gone with the wind. And so we went to see the movie version of Gone with the Wind, and um, I was just surprised. She held on to my arm, and she sobbed through the whole movie, just crying. And um, I didn't realize, I guess, the history of the Union Army marching through Georgia with a scorched earth policy ending, culminating in the burning of Atlanta. And uh, she was telling me that, you know, the, you know, all the Georgians she knew were very intense. They remembered this. And I, you know, it's been over a hundred years, but yet listening to your interview, I realized that she must have had some past life connection. I was wondering if you would speak about the burning of Atlanta. Sure. I know Gone with the Wind is Hollywood, but um, how true is that? No, there's a lot of accuracy there. So Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, is actually buried in Oakland Cemetery, where the roll call of the dead is. And she bases this on this sort of Jonesboro town, and, and, and it's a real town that she sets this in, where the Atlanta campaign ends in that town. Uh, William Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant really sort of brought the end uh, to the Civil War with Union victory. Grant went to go get Robert E. Lee in Virginia. Sherman goes after Joe Johnston, and they decide to push the supply lines and break through that corridor to the Deep South and really push the South further down away from D.C. So when they go down there, Sherman decides he is going to do this scorched earth policy. He lost his son during the war. He has some mental health stuff going on. Grant didn't give him any boundaries. He's going to do this. And so they're literally burning bridges. They are taking away people's homes. It's the only time that a Union soldier would ever touch civilians, and it only happens in Georgia. They will take down anything. And they march through, and brothers, sons, fathers, entire families are decimated. The Atlanta campaign happens over a period of months in the sweltering summer. Bodies are piling up there. This is an area where the great locomotive chase had taken place, executions had taken place. Now there's bodies piling up. It's an incredibly violent and terrible time. And then Sherman eventually makes it with his men to Savannah, Georgia, in the march to the sea, and gives Savannah to Lincoln as a Christmas gift that year, you know, that they conquered Georgia. But if you say William Sherman in Georgia, I tell folks it's like saying Voldemort and Harry Potter. This is very real to them. He destroyed their homes, their land, their culture. He made the enemy almost villainous to them in a way it never was before, and their descendants remember. They must hate him, huh? They, they do. They, I mean, and I, and I can understand. At first I was thinking, oh, all was fair in war. What are you talking about? But then when you really look into the meat of what Sherman did and what he had his men do and the ruthlessness with which he kept prisoners eating rats in Savannah, I mean, he was just, he, he was savage to them. You know, he didn't treat them as people.
Let's go to John, truck driving in Michigan. Welcome to the program. Hi, John. Hi, George. Good morning, Courtney. I, uh, George, I got to tell you, I never heard that the other the other day too. That uh, letter with the uh, Le- letter from Michael. Never heard that before. Boy, boy that was great. Inspirational, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, that was great. And uh, of course, I want to wish you both a, a happy New Year. But I got to tell you something. I live in the Perrysburg, Maumee, Ohio area, and that in the Revolutionary was the Battle of Fallen Timbers. And I got to tell you, one night. My, my brother-in-law and sister had gone on vacation, and they'd asked me to stop over and take care of the house. And I let the dogs out and feed them. And it was, I don't know the temperature. It was a little chilly, and I decided they had a little pit there. I was going to build a fire. So I built a little bit of a fire, and it was going pretty good, and I took the dogs back in the house. When I came back out, there were three men standing by this fire. Hmm. And I went out, and I was going to get a chair to sit down, but I decided I'd just walk over there, and I kind of disturbed. I, you know, I wasn't going to yell at them to get out of there, but the two men didn't speak to me. They looked at me and made eye contact, and I said, you know, what are you guys doing out this late at night or something? And they just nodded to me. And But the other guy spoke, and I assumed he was an officer. They had blankets or something around them, but the, this guy had hair and a ponytail, to the back and he said and I said you know you should you shouldn't just jump on people's property or something and he spoke very weird he, he said I'll never forget how he said it would you deny these men the comfort of your fire and I thought that was weird how he would speak to me and and I said no I'm not doing that but I said you know you shouldn't trespass on people's property and he, he referred to me as a settler <laughs> and he said, where are your loyalties to and I said, well, to God, of course. And then he said, and not your country? And I said, yeah, naturally, my country. And he goes, spoke mm-hmm. like a fine settler. And then I stood around, it was quiet, and I said, well, I'm going to go in the house and get get me a beer They, you know, or something. Do you need anything? And they nodded no. And when I came back, they were gone. Sounds like, Courtney, they were Civil War members. It sound, well, I think you said revolutionary, right? Revolutionary War? Um, if they were Revolutionary War, Civil War and Revolutionary War behave very similarly, but Revolution had a little more of the ponytails. But they would be trying to ascertain if he was a loyalist or if he was a patriot. And they would go through, just like the Civil War guys did, and they would go to civilians' homes for, for warmth, for a fire, for a meal um, to be taken care of. And civilians would have flags and things that would show their allegiances. So it's likely that they saw a fire, a shelter, maybe he lives in a time slip, and they went there to get some assistance from him. I stayed in an Airbnb once in Chickamauga, Georgia, and the fireplaces kept turning turning on, you know, that entire night. And I found out the battle that night was incredibly cold. Um, They will go for warmth and food. So it sounds like that's precisely what they were doing. Let's go to Dorothy in Cincinnati. Hi, Dorothy. Hi. Good to have you with us. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, Happy New Year, by the way. Thank you. And uh, Courtney, I wanted to let you know, this is a weird one. I've, I've not told very many people this. I'm 72, and when I was 21, I was a governess here in Cincinnati. Um, 
one night about three, two, three o'clock in the morning, I looked out on the second floor where I stayed, and there were these these horsemen coming right at me. There were like three of them, and they were in dark clothes. And then once they got to the building I was in, they disappeared. Jeez. Completely disappeared. And I know that underneath the building I lived in, um, it was, well, the house, the original house used to be um, a hospital back in the Civil War. And then the house I lived in, um, there was where they used to shoe the horses. And then below that, there was also a uh, opening where it would take you all the way to the Ohio River. But... That's my story. That's a great story. Courtney, why don't they move on, these spirits? Yeah, I think, you know, some of them have. Some of this is residual. Some of this is time. The other ones that don't move on so much is they're stuck in a time of such violence and tragedy. Their lives ripped short. They may not have even fully comprehended the gravity of what they were going through, or they died so quickly they they don't realize it. On the other side, these folks so badly wanted to be brought home and die at home. And either they were dying in hospitals, they were dying on battlefields, their bodies were being moved from place to place or placed in shallow graves. They were never given an opportunity to rest peacefully. And this is what they're still looking for. So they keep going back to that last point in time that they remember trying to get that peaceful rest. How emotional does it get for people on the tour? You know, depending on what we're talking about, it can get very emotional. But in particular, if I'm taking folks through battlefields or doing Civil War stuff, you know, there's a lot of times of tears and peace or we need a moment to just sit somewhere and think about things because you feel them there and you feel their sorrow. We're going to take a short break and come back with Courtney McInvale and take final phone calls. Her website is her name, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Her tours are called Seaside Shadows Haunted History Tours. And her books include Civil War Ghosts of Georgia, Volumes 1 and 2. Two, she's working on that one. Civil War Ghosts of Connecticut, Revolutionary War Ghosts of Connecticut, and Haunted Mystic. So we'll be back in a moment on Coast to Coast AM with Courtney McInvale on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Courtney McInvale with us. Let's take final calls. Let's go to Frank in Hollywood, Maryland to get us going. Hey, Frank. Howdy, George. Glad to be back with you. Thank Courtney, you, sir. I'd like to ask you uh, a question about three generals in any ghost stories uh, of their battles. Uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, better known as Stonewall Jackson, and uh, General, Lieutenant General James Longstreet, and the worst of the worst, General Jubal Ehrlich. Any of those generals come to mind for you, Courtney? Oh my gosh, all of them. I'm like listening. I'm like, oh, those are my guys. Those are who I write about. Uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, my father was aficionado of him, so I was raised on Stonewall Jackson stories, and I have visited his grave where he died, where his arm is buried, where he was shot. I've done the full Stonewall Jackson tour, um, and there's lots of stories that abound about him, of course, but I think the most fascinating Stonewall Jackson ghost story 
came about um, a couple months after he died. He died in May of 1863 at Chancellorsville. And in July of 1863, there was the Battle of Gettysburg. And the men at Gettysburg, on his side of the war, he's Confederate, state that they see the ghost of Stonewall Jackson in a Union uniform at Pickett's Charge. And they weren't sure why he would be wearing a Union uniform. But they later deduced that the ghost of Stonewall Jackson was trying to tell them that the Union line was up there and was about to massacre them right there on Cemetery Ridge, and they would have no way of knowing that. Robert E. Lee kind of made a, a bad call for his folks, and they thought that maybe Stonewall was trying to help them, but it was too late. Now, of course, James Longstreet, who he mentioned, was also there at Gettysburg. He's a Georgia man, and uh, in Georgia, in Gainesville, the old Piedmont Hotel that he used to run and live at is haunted by several things, not the least of which are the ghosts of his three children who died of scarlet fever when he was in the war. They are buried in Richmond, Virginia, but also the ghost of General Longstreet is seen at the train station by that hotel to this day, waiting for guests to come in and out, and they have several strange phenomena happening there. Now, Jubal Early, he's not my favorite guy. I don't think he's anyone's favorite guy. Uh, he was a bit of a jerk to everybody, um, and he often complained when men brought their wives to war, but I did read a really funny story about him, our man John Gordon, who had a lot of paranormal encounters, brought his wife everywhere, and finally, uh, Jubal Early agreed that his wife wasn't so bad to have around. So that was the best thing that I read about Jubal Early. But they brought their wives to war? Some of them did. The wives insisted they would go, and they would tend to their wounds. They would tend to the men. They would cook. Uh, they would do anything they could. They didn't want to be without their spouse. Interesting. Let's go to Joe in Pennsylvania, first-time caller. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. Good morning, George. Good morning, Courtney. Hi, Joe. Good morning. I have a little bit of a story. It happened yeah, within the last three years. Okay. Well, COVID, COVID was happening, so a lot of reenactments weren't, weren't happening. But I took my wife and daughter down to Gettysburg because normally when they're open and they're having the reenactments, I'm working. So... We went down there, we visited and saw some things that we were able to see without them being open. We enjoyed the day. We drove home. Well, on the return trip, it got to be dark out. We got to the house. We all went in the house. And my wife forgot something in the car. She goes out to the car she comes running back into the house telling me there's a guy sitting in the car. So I grab my pistol, I go outside, and there's a gentleman sitting in the back seat of the car. So I threw open the door and I asked him what he wanted. But he was in old, I want to say civilian clothes. It wasn't, they weren't really like period clothes from Gettysburg. He was just in old, tattered clothes. He didn't say anything. Huh. And when I turned around and yelled to my wife, I turned back around and he was gone. Wow. Wow. So we didn't think nothing of it. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, it was a ghost, uh, you know, whatever. 
went back in the house, went to sleep, woke up the next day. Everything's fine. Everything's back to normal. We thought we were just tired. And about three days later, my wife went out to feed the kittens outside, and there's this same gentleman walking up the yard. <laughs> she called for me. I ran outside. He walked up the hill of our house across the street and disappeared. Jeez, same kind of clothes, Joe? Same clothes, same everything. So now we're freaking out. <laughs> My wife says, who? Who is it? I said, I don't know. I said, he doesn't say anything. I said, when I asked him in the car who he was, he more or less ignored me. Uh, two days after that, my daughter, who is handicapped, is sitting out on the picnic table. And my wife says, Courtney's talking to somebody. Oh. <laughs> I said, what do you mean she's talking to somebody? She said, somebody's out there on the picnic table with her talking to her. I go out there and this guy's sitting there. And I'm like, Courtney, come here. <laughs> so she come running over. We turn back around. He's gone. He's gone. Wow. Did she, did, was, was he kind to her? Yes. And she said, Daddy, she said, he's as old as I am. Now, you probably could say he's a Civil War person, but there's a ghost, no doubt, Courtney. It is. And I, you know, a couple of folks come to mind if they were visiting Gettysburg. You know, there's a famed Texan who walks around the Devil's Den, and he's wearing tattered clothes like he describes, and he's barefoot because a lot of the Texans fought without shoes. And, um, you know, he's very helpful, and he's very kind, and he tries to push people that are visiting the area out of the way of danger and to the point where people thought he was a reenactor working there, helping people, and thank the Park Service only to find out he was a ghost. So possibly him, but I also had an encounter uh, near the Eternal Flame there where someone came up to my car looking like they were in period clothes. The car sort of signals started saying that someone was next to the car. They were frantic. This was by Iverson's Pits, as they're known, one of the oldest ghost stories of Gettysburg, uh, where a bunch of men, you know, were shot down, hundreds of them in minutes, mm -hmm. and up here at sunset on that farm. It was the first recorded ghost story at the time. And that is where I saw someone approach my car, and that man that I saw, figured out, approached the car, had two young girls uh, when he was there in Gettysburg that they weren't with him, but they were his daughters, and he just lost his wife. So it could be either of them. It could be Iverson or it could be the Texan. Joe in the Bronx, take it away, Joseph. Good to have you with us. Hey, George. How you doing? Great. Uh, yeah, happy holidays, George. Thank you, Joe. Um, Courtney, I wanted to ask you about uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Um, sure. He, yeah, his tomb, Grant's tomb, I believe, was in Battery Park in Manhattan, New York. Correct, yes. And his family requested to have him relocated. Um, do you have any information on that, and can you give us any stories about U.S. Grant? 
I can. Um, he's actually one of my favorite people, and I'm standing right now next to an antique portrait of him <laughs> that I keep right at my desk. I actually um, thought you were going to say you were standing next to him. Oh, well, maybe <laughs> I am, but at least his portrait, at least. And I've been to his grave um, in New York. I have not heard of them moving it to date because it is the biggest grave uh, that was ever made during Civil War times. And it was such a point of discussion because they had to move him around and rebuild the entire thing when his wife died because they had not left adequate space for her to be buried next to him, which was his one requirement with his grave site. And they went through so much to do that, it would be incredibly difficult to do. And it's multiple stories. And just last year I was there and they were having, you know, a ceremony for him on the anniversary of his death. So I don't think he's going anywhere. As far as ghost stories for him, I think my favorite Grant story uh, comes from his wife, Julia Dent Grant, when they were still alive. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant was supposed to go uh, to the play with Lincoln on the day that Lincoln was uh, assassinated. But Julia Dent Grant had a premonition Mm -hmm. that her husband was supposed to be killed as well as the president. And she begged her husband not to go to the play. And he said, you know, listen, we, we have to go. We can't tell the president, no, you know, just because you don't like his wife doesn't mean we can turn it down. The wives didn't like each other. And his wife said, no, I know you're going to die. Do not go there. So he told the president, I can't go to the play. I have to go home and see my family. And he and his wife went to see their kids. And, of course, that night uh, Lincoln was assassinated, and Grant was supposed to be assassinated with him, and the conspirators revealed all of that later. But that premonition is one of the first paranormal stories I ever read about Grant, that his wife was a seer, and she predicted that that would happen. He's lucky they didn't look at him as a suspect. Grant and Lincoln had a famously good relationship, so I think he was all right there. <laughs> East of the Rockies, Bill in Florida. Go ahead, Bill. Hi, how you doing? Good, Bill. Thank you. Um, yeah, if you're interested in the Civil War and you're also interested in ghost stories, you should watch a film called Seraphim Falls with William Neeson. Okay. He, yeah, he portrays a... Uh, he portrays a colonel at the end of the Civil War. He's a Confederate colonel, and his family has just, during the war, had been burned to death by this uh, Union uh, officer. It was actually uh, kind of an accident because he meant to burn the place down, but he didn't know there was people inside the building or something, and his family uh. burned alive inside the building. So he's trying to track them down. To kill him, but he wants to. Uh, he wants him to know that that he was the one who did it and stuff. So, um, so he's hunting down this uh, this union officer, and at the end of the movie, as uh, you, you kind of get the idea that they actually have become ghosts and they're still fighting each other right up to the very end when they finally uh, when they finally give up and walk off into the distance and disappear. Wow. That's great. Liam Neeson's a great actor. He is. I'll have to check that out. And uh, there definitely are a lot of real haunted houses that officers, you know, uses their headquarters or stops through on that were civilian homes. So something like that could have happened. What's the name of the movie again, Bill? Yeah, it's called Seraphim, like the angel Seraphim. Yeah. Seraphim Falls. Okay, great. 
Thank you, Bill. Appreciate that. Have yourself a good New Year as well. Amazing stories, Courtney. Yes, yes. I mean, I love that all these listeners are coming up with such great questions because it triggers my brain to remember all these amazing stories. They're just endless, really. Well, they're the best. We've got about a minute left. Tell people how they can get your books, where they can go on your website and go on the tour. So for my books, you can go to CourtneyMacInvale.com, and that's linked on all the Coast to Coast things. And there's actually a banner on there with a discount for Coast to Coast listeners for the pre-order of Volume 2 and for Volume 1 of Georgia. For the tours, you can go to SeasideShadows.com, and you can see our Connecticut tours, our Rhode Island tours. And in a few months, you'll see some tours in the Macon, Georgia area as well. And you can reach out to me on either of those websites. Courtney, what do you say to people who simply tell you, I'm scared, I don't want to do this? I tell them to just breathe. Know that these are just people without their human vessels that we're looking to connect with and to just uh, allow the experience to just happen. There's nothing to be scared of. We're We're just talking with them. Great. Well, you take care of yourself. You did a great job. First time guest on the show. Come on back again, all right? I would love to. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Courtney McInvale, website linked up at coasttocoastam.com to be sure. A little program note for you. We will be live on New Year's Day next Monday. We'll have some live shows for you on New Year's Eve and Saturday and Sunday. But I'll be live for you on Monday, New Year's Day. So after your festivities, as we kick in 2024, folks, unbelievable. Truly remarkable. And we start our 22nd year, I am, of doing Coast to Coast. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean LaDesseur, Jeremy Wells, Stephanie Smith, Chris Borles, Tim Banal, George Knapp, and Richard Serrett. I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.